Hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. And our focus this morning will be on verses 21 to 30. <clears throat> What we are looking at is an expanded form of what is summarized in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. Let me begin by reading that. By faith, he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the application of blood or the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. What we see in Hebrews 11, verse 28, in summary form, and what we see in expanded form in Exodus chapter 12, is the inseparable connection between faith and understanding of the blood of Christ. The inseparable connection. And I will go so far as to say today that if you do not have an adequate understanding of what the blood of Christ accomplishes and signifies, then you do not have saving faith. I will also say that there is nothing that could bring about more reviving within our families and within the church than if we all came to a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for the blood of Christ and what it means and what it accomplishes for God's people. And in particular, if more fathers and father figures gained a greater appreciation for the blood of Christ, it would lead to a greater reviving within our families, within the church. This is absolutely essential but without an adequate understanding of the blood of Christ, then our faith tends to devolve into a kind of optimism, a kind of generic hopefulness about God, a kind of vague appreciation of Jesus. I think we all agree that if you're a Christian, you have some appreciation for Jesus, right? You want to learn from him. You believe he did something for you. He, he's, he's worth listening to. He seems to demand some kind of obedience from your life. And far too many stop there. And as a result, their faith, or what they believe is faith, is just an amorphous hopefulness. But with an understanding of the blood of Christ and why the blood of Christ needed to be shed, with that comes definition and form and clarity 
and your faith. And with that comes salvation. And there is no passage in the Old Testament that speaks more clearly to the need for God's Son to come to shed his own blood than what we read here in Exodus chapter 12. This is what we call a type or a foreshadowing of the fulfillment when Christ came. And so as we read these verses, we're looking at why God told his people about the necessity of blood in their deliverance. It may seem odd, may seem gruesome, may seem gory to us, but it is absolutely necessary. And here's what's going on. God sent Moses to be the mediator between himself and his people to tell Pharaoh that God says, let my people go. Pharaoh has enslaved the people of Israel, and God sends Moses to lead them out along with his brother Aaron. And God had warned Moses that Pharaoh is not going to take kindly to your message. In fact, he's going to refuse to let my people go. And as a result of his stubbornness, as a result of his hard heart, I'm going to bring one plague after another upon the Egyptians. And when we come to Exodus 12, we've seen nine plagues so far. You would think one would be sufficient. And we need to understand why there are so many plagues. It's not that God's just showing off. God is glorifying himself by demonstrating his total and unrivaled sovereignty over all of creation. He's making himself known to the Egyptians. And we need to understand that the Egyptians are polytheists and pantheists. They believe in a multiplicity of gods, and they believe that everything in some sense is a god. And with each plague, God is showing that there's only one God, and he is in control of all of creation. He is the creator. He is distinct from creation. He is transcendent over creation. And God brings this out very clearly in chapter 12, verse 12, when he says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. That's what God is doing, bringing judgment against all the gods of Egypt to show that they are not gods at all. And in verses 1 to 20 of Exodus 12, God gives Moses the instructions that Moses is in turn to give to the people about the Passover. Here is what you are to do. And Moses, as a faithful servant, turns around and tells the people what God expects them to do when the tenth and final plague comes, the most severe and deadly of them all. So let's pick up our reading beginning at verse 21, Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop 
dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. A terrifying plague, a horrifying plague. A plague that makes us wince and and reel from this. Why is God doing this? And what is it about this blood that spares his people? What an odd thing for God to tell his people to do. Carefully pick out a lamb, and and we're told earlier in the chapter that this is to be a lamb without blemish or defect. Kill the lamb, take some of the blood from a branch of hyssop, dip the hyssop in the blood, and then put it over your doorframe. And when the Lord sees that, that will be a sign to him to pass over, the meaning of Passover, to pass over that household and that family to spare that household from his judgment his severe terrifying horrifying judgment upon the egyptians why why does this matter what is it about this ritual here's what god is showing his people then and what we can learn from it now Blood must be shed to atone for sin. Blood must be shed to atone for sin. Life must be taken. And when we read this, we tend to fixate on how gory and gruesome and bloody all this is. And is is this really what our faith is about? And some people demean this as bloody cross religion and think, we've advanced beyond that. That's for pagan cultures and that's not Christianity and we don't have to preach that anymore and we're more sophisticated now and we don't like thinking about such things. And yet over and over again, God emphasizes the absolute life or death necessity for blood to be shed. 
like it or not. And it's a manifestation of our fallenness, of our twisted sinfulness, that we think this is more gory and more gruesome and more offensive than our own sinfulness. And it's because we don't have an adequate understanding of God's holiness that we find this atonement to be so offensive. And we don't have an adequate appreciation for God's holiness because we don't really understand just how sinful we are. We haven't come to grips with the exceeding sinfulness of sin, just how offensive it is in God's sight. And that's the standard. Not what I think about it, not what you think about it, not what is offensive in my eyes or your eyes, but what is offensive in God's eyes. God reveals himself to be a holy God. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is just and right in everything he does and in everything he allows, and you are not and I am not. Who here can honestly say that you have loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who here can honestly say that you're not like a sheep who has wandered astray? That you haven't thought things that you should not have thought? That you haven't said things that you should not have said? Who here can honestly say that you've done everything you should have done that you've said everything you should have said before a holy God. When we can honestly and from our hearts admit that that's true, that God is holy, that we are not, that we stand condemned, we're starting to come to grips with what is happening in this passage. And what we need to see is that when God distinguishes between Israel and the Egyptians, between his people and those who are not his people. It has absolutely nothing to do with the worthiness of his people. Nothing. When you look back, at first, they're not happy that Moses has come. They think Moses has just brought more trouble upon them than they had before. When Moses first announces to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh responds by making their work even harder. He says, now you have to make the same number of bricks to build the same number of buildings, and I'm not going to give you straw to make the bricks anymore. You're on your own. And what is their response? In chapter 5, verse 21, we read, May the Lord look on you, Moses, and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They have hard hearts too. They're stubborn too. Just like I am. And just like you are. And it is the sheer mercy of God to provide any means of escape for anyone. Now how upside down is our thinking? We think, why does God allow anyone to die? Why does God allow anything bad to happen to anybody? Why is the world filled with so much evil and wickedness? Instead of saying, why does God spare anyone? And why would God spare a wretch like me? That's how we need to think. 
to really understand what's happening here. So that what God brings upon the Egyptians is the just consequence of their stubbornness. And what God brings about for the Israelites, for his people, is the consequence of his sheer mercy. When you admit that, when you acknowledge that, then you're ready to understand why this blood and the shedding of this blood is so necessary and so important. Because we have sinned against a holy God, we deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's our just payment from God. Death. The first death that awaits every single one of us the death of our body. But even more horrifying is the second death, the death of our spirits, the eternal death that we deserve in hell. That's what we deserve. And it's because we've offended a holy God. And so for God to forgive our sins, to pardon us, for us to be reconciled to God, a death must be offered. That's what God is pointing his people to here. An animal must die. Blood must be shed. And what is it about the blood? Well, we're told in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I'm going to put that in the margin. Leviticus 17, verse 11. The life of a creature is in the blood. The blood symbolizes the power of life. And there's nothing about these lambs or these goats or any other animals that are sacrificed that can atone for sins. We're told this very clearly in Hebrews. Verse, chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But we're also told in verse 22 of chapter 9, that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So blood must be shed, or there is no forgiveness. God cannot just turn a blind eye to our sin. He can't just say, it's okay, don't worry about it. Or he would not be just. He would not be righteous. What kind of God says, oh, don't worry about it? Yes, you've offended. Yes, you haven't loved People created in my image as I want them to be loved. You haven't treated them as I want them to be treated. But it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's fine. No. God is just. He's righteous. This sin must be dealt with. So how? Blood must be shed. A life must be offered to make atonement. But the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can't do it. So what does God do? God sent his one and only son. So that when John the Baptist sees him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the answer. Why? Because his life is a pure life. His life is a holy life. His is a life that shows us what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. His is a life that shows us what it looks like to fully obey all of God's commands. the letter and the Spirit. He shows us what it means. And because of that, when He gives His life, when He sheds His blood, it can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
It does for us what no lamb can do for us. It can reconcile a holy God. It can make atonement so that our sins can be removed. And we know that because God the Father looked upon his sacrifice and vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Yes, this is my son. Yes, this is an acceptable sacrifice. This is absolutely necessary. And we need to understand that the benefits of what Christ accomplished reach back to atone for the sins of all God's people in the past and reach forward to atone for the sins of all God's people who are yet to come. And one of the greatest misunderstandings is that there's somehow an Old Testament way to be saved and a New Testament way to be saved. No, there is only one way to be saved and there's ever only been one way to be saved and that is on the basis of the atonement that Christ made for sinners, received by faith, trusting in that sacrifice. That's the only way. The only way. And now that that atonement has been offered, now that reconciliation with God is possible, symbolized by the shedding of this blood, by the killing of the Passover lamb, we need to understand that it's not enough just for the lamb to die. It's not enough just for the shedding of blood to take place. What do they do with the blood? They take hyssop and they dip it in the blood and they put it on their door frame. And this shows us that blood must be applied to turn away God's wrath. Blood must be applied. It must be shed to atone for sin, for there to be reconciliation. The debt we owe to God, the sin debt we owe, must be paid for. But then that blood must be applied to you and to me. Or we are not saved. Notice how the Israelites could have killed a, a lamb. They could eat the lamb as they're told to do. They could celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But if they don't put the blood on their doorpost, they are not spared. They are not saved. They will die just like the Egyptians. It must be applied. And we see Moses' faith and we see the faith of the Israelites in taking God at his word. No matter how weird this may have seemed to them, how odd this may have seemed. You're telling me I've got to put blood, smear blood on my doorframe? How is that ever going to come off? We may be thinking about such things, and yet we need to understand that God calls us to take him at his word, to trust in the sufficiency of this blood. We need this blood applied to our hearts. We need God to interpose his blood, the blood of his son, in our place. And when that happens, as we read in Romans 5, 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you believe that God is justly angry at sin? Or do you say, I, I just don't like to think of God that way. 
I only like to think of God as compassionate and merciful and all-inclusive. Do you understand that God is right and just to be angry against your sin and my sin? And that it is entirely his grace that can intervene. And the ordinary way that he does that is when his word is preached. When he says, Moses, tell my people to apply the blood to their door frames. And when they do it, when I say now as a preacher of the gospel, repent and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation, then the Holy Spirit uses that and awakens faith in God's people. You are regenerated. You are born again. You believe. And you accept and you receive and you rest in what Jesus has done for you. That's how we know that it's been applied. And, and the virtue and the benefits and the goodness of what Christ accomplished applies to you. Has that happened in your life? It's not enough just to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It must be applied to your heart so that you know there is absolutely no basis for me to be spared this terrible, terrifying judgment that God exacts upon the Egyptians. Nothing. I deserve that. But for His sheer mercy in Christ. Because He shared the good news with me. Because someone preached to me. Because someone told me about Jesus. Oh, it's all of grace. It's all of mercy. Do you believe that? Well, notice it's not just enough to believe that blood needs to be shed. It's not just enough to have it applied. We are also responsible for handing it on. If we truly believe it's been shed for us, if we, we believe it's been applied to our lives, then we are responsible for handing that on. If God has brought about this change in us, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Blood must be remembered to instruct the next generation. It must be shed. It must be applied. It must be remembered. Don't forget this. Forget not the Lord and all His benefits who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases. Forget not His benefits. Remember and make sure your children know and your grandchildren know and your great-grandchildren know and on and on and on. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not for me to invent or to tweak or to change. And neither is it for you. We are to hand it on. Are you handing it on? When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Why, why does this lamb have to die? Something so precious, so, so sweet and cute. Why? What are you, Dad, what are you doing? What are you doing with that blood? Why are you smearing that on the doorpost? Why are we only eating this brittle, unleavened bread? How about some yeast? Why are we eating these bitter herbs? Why? It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then the people bowed down and worshipped. 
We need more fathers. We need more men who get this and who know what to say to their children and to the children in our midst as to why we talk about the blood of Jesus and why we can't stop talking about the blood of Jesus, why we're not offended by it, why we don't care what the the world thinks about it, what they may say about us. This is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. This is the evidence that he passed over me and he can pass over our household and our family. This is why blood must be smeared on our doorframe. Family by family. Parent by parent saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Never mind what they do next door. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Men, dads, father figures, does your faith have this kind of shape and definition? Have you told your kids? Have you told your kids what Jesus has done on the cross for sinners? Do you pray and thank God every day for what Jesus has done on the cross for you? Do you praise God that He passed over you? That He spared you? This blood must be remembered and never, ever forgotten. But in order for us to hand this on to the next generation, we have to believe it ourselves. We have to have been gripped by it ourselves. We have to have been changed by the Spirit of God. You think about when you're riding on an airplane and the oxygen masks drop out of the ceiling. Who do you put that mask on first? Yourself. Then the person sitting next to you. Then your child. Because if you pass out, you're definitely not going to be able to put it on your child. You've got to have received this to breathe the oxygen of the gospel so that you, in turn, can share that with your children. Are you living and breathing the gospel? Are you living and breathing Christ on a daily basis? Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Can our children honestly say that church is not just something we do on Sunday? Our faith is not just something we live out on Sunday. It's day in, it's day out. My dad really believes it. My mom really believes it. Our family stakes our hope and our future on this. This is all of our hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other fount I know. Can you sing that? Can you pray that? Can you celebrate that? Can you tell the next generation? Because I need to say this hard truth to you. And I don't say this because I'm trying to be dramatic or I'm trying to pressure you or to scare anybody. I need to say this to you because it's the truth. And I would be derelict in my duty as a minister of the gospel if I did not put it this plainly and this clearly. Only one thing stands between you and hell. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. 
an eternity filled with remorse and regret. Only one thing. And that one thing is the precious blood of Jesus shed in your place as your substitute, absorbing in his body the penalty that you deserved and received by faith. Having that blood applied to you, to your life, to your heart, by the work of the Spirit, bringing about faith in you. Only one thing. That's how dire, that's how desperate this is. And in view of that, you need to know just what awaits those who refuse God's offer, who think they don't need the blood, who are offended by the blood, who are embarrassed by the blood of Christ. Consider the wailing in Egypt, the wailing in Pharaoh's household, the wailing of the family who has someone in the dungeon, a prisoner, the maidservant, from the top echelon of Egyptian life and culture to the very bottom rung of Egyptian life. Every household is filled with weeping and wailing. Consider how horrifying that is, how terrible that is, how much we want to look away from that. How could you? And yet, what does Jesus say about hell? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever and ever. Oh, you think this is bad? Consider eternity. Do you understand where you stand apart from the blood of Jesus? And on the other side of the service, it's Father's Day. We all have plans. We've got Sunday school after this. We all have plans to go. And, I, and I'm afraid one problem with the church today is we're overscheduled. We have so many things to do. We have so many plans to make, people to see. If the Holy Spirit is impressing this on your heart and, and you see your need for the blood of Jesus as you never have before, don't go anywhere. Don't leave this place. Don't do anything without spending time with your eyes closed in humble prayer before this holy God. And when you do that and when you know what the blood means and what God has done for you, then you can leave this place rejoicing because here's the greatest news of all. Just a drop of the precious blood of Jesus is enough for you. It's enough for me. Because His blood is precious. God hasn't redeemed us with gold or silver or anything that's precious in the eyes of the world, but the blood, the precious blood of His Son, Jesus. And it only takes one drop. His righteousness is sufficient for you. His holiness is sufficient for you. His life is sufficient for you. His sacrifice, His willing sacrifice on the cross is enough for you to atone for your sins in this life and in the life to come. So that when you stand before God as your judge, you can say it is only because of His blood shed for me. Only because of His blood applied to my life that I'm here. Again, just pray for a drop of Jesus' blood. Just a drop. Call out to God. Cry out to the Lord. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. 
believe that, take him at his word, claim this promise. That's faith at work. Saving faith at work. Don't go anywhere. Don't say anything. Don't do anything until you have addressed this. If this is the last sermon I preach, I want you to hear clearly. This is what it all depends on. This is what it all rides on. Eternal destinies hang in the balance at the preaching of God's word. We cannot afford to be indifferent. We cannot afford to be passive. And if you say, yes, I believe, just a drop, Lord. That's all. That's all. It's more than I deserve. That's your mercy. Then may the Holy Spirit enliven you and awaken you. And may you leave this place rejoicing. You're free. You're justified before God. Hell has no power over you. What can death do to you? Where is the sting of death now? May that joy be present in you and in me from this day forward as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. Lord, your word tells us that if we claim we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and we make you out to be a liar. We don't want to do that, Lord. We want to humbly submit to what you tell us about ourselves and about what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, may we all receive this by faith. May we remember it. And I pray especially, Lord, for the fathers and the father figures in our midst, all those hearing this message, that they would be gripped in a special way to point their families, to point their children to the only blood that can satisfy the demands of your justice, the only blood that can turn away your just, good, and holy wrath. Lord, we have no basis for even talking to you but because of the blood of Christ, we can be bold before you, bold before your throne of grace. And that's why I pray this prayer, Lord. That's why I'm bold to pray this, because of Jesus, because of his blood. Lord, may we never get over it. May we be thankful. May we be joyful. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.